Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. tax reform to the OECD's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services leader. You can follow me on Twitter at ExporterTax. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, I'm excited to be joined by Rohit Kumar. Rohit is the co-leader of PwC's Washington National Tax Service office and regular contributor to PwC's Policy On Demand, a tax and trade policy vlog with free weekly updates now available on YouTube. Prior to joining PwC, Rohit served in a number of distinguished government positions, including 11 years with Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell, for whom he served as domestic policy director and deputy chief of staff. Rohit, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me here, Doug. Well, I'm very excited to have you on. And before we dive into to extenders and tax extenders, which I'm very interested in learning about today, um, wanted to ask really just kind of a broad question about your experience in government, given where we are with just such a polarized environment between the Republicans and the Democrats. So you worked for Senator McConnell, again, for 11 years and, and specifically back in 2008, where there was a Republican president and a Democrat-controlled Congress during the financial crisis. And as I mentioned today, there is so much polarization. I was hoping that we could just start today with, with an example or examples that, that you could provide of, you know, did you have any experiences where actually Republicans and Democrats worked together on behalf of the greater good for, for the country as a whole? And it seems harder to find examples of that in today's environment. And we'll see if the climate changes and there's still uncertainty with what's going on with, with, uh, with, with the Senate specifically. But was hoping that we could start with a positive message of collaboration in Washington, D.C., even if we have to go back a decade. Yeah. So, it, you know, I think about 2008. I think about it a lot, actually, because I do um, sort of wonder if we had a similar sort of economic event, you know, could we pull it off a second time? Because in 2008, right, you had a Democratic controlled House and Senate, a Republican president. And don't forget, we were in the middle of a presidential election. This was Obama McCain, right? And this is all happening in the fall of 2008. So we are a full on throws in the middle of a uh, presidential, you know, uh, campaign effort and a hard fought one um, at the time. Um, but it was really, you know, in, in hindsight, it was really sort of heartening. Um, not only did you have Republicans and Democrats come together, like convening in large hearing rooms as staff with the administration, um, hammering through the issues, but even the Republicans and Democrats who were not convinced that the, that the path that we were taking, that, you know, providing a bunch of liquidity to the financial system was necessarily the right way to go. We may not think this is the right way to go, but we're not um, we're not sure, and we're not going to make it any harder than it's already going to be. And so, you know, we had some pretty vocal opponents of what we were doing in 2008, and they could have made it much harder. The Senate, in particular, is a place that operates largely by what we call unanimous consent or sort of universal agreement. And so, any one member. Um, if they want to make things more difficult, can just start objecting to all the agreements that need to be put into place to process legislation. And nobody did that, even though they were prepared to vote no, and they, many of them did vote no. And even though they weren't really convinced that we were doing the right thing, they understood the gravity of the situation. And they were open to the possibility that perhaps they did not have the better of the argument. And so while they weren't going to vote for the agreement, um, neither were they going to make it any more difficult 
to achieve than it was already going to be to achieve. And it was a hard fought um, negotiation. And there are, um, I don't have it handy now, but I, at, at the time there were pictures of me sitting on the, like the floor in the Senate office building with Democratic staff and Neil Kashkar, who ended up becoming like kind of the sort of chief organizer of the, the funds once they were authorized, hammering out like changes to the executive compensation regime for, you know, for uh, businesses that were taking TARP funding. Um, and so it really was like everyone pulling together. And, you know, in, in 2018, sort of on the 10 year anniversary of that, there were a round of stories where a lot of reporters asked, like, could we do this again? Um, and I'll tell you, my answer at the time was, um, I don't know. I, I sort of hope we never have to find out. But it, you're right, Doug, that things have gotten more polarized. It's gotten more challenging. Um, I would like to think that we could pull it together again if we had to. Uh, but I really, really hope we're never sort of asked to answer that question. Well, and, and we might be, right? We're recording this here in, in late November of 2020. We'll have a new president in, in January and a lot of uncertainty from an economic perspective, a lot of uncertainty with, with COVID-19. And uh, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that, that our, our leaders will be able to, to get together for, for the greater good. And I, I think that's, that's a great example. Um, you know, we'll, we'll find out, I guess, in, in January, whether we end up with, with mixed government or not. And 50 is a uh, razor thin, even if both of those seats go, uh, go democratic. But uh, I am, I'm optimistic for the country that our policymakers will be able to, to work together because I, I'm, I'm guessing that we may have some, some choppy waters ahead, but, but we will see. Right. And the one thing I will say is um, if we do end up with divided government where Republicans have the Senate, but Democrats, of course, that will have the House and, and the White House, um, you know, McConnell and Biden do have a history of working together. Like these are two people, they will say tough things about each other in public, right? That's politics. Uh, but behind closed doors, they can set that aside. They don't take those slights personally. They don't let it get in the way. Uh, I, I'm optimistic, uh, like, like you. I think these are two individuals um, who can work together, have proven they can work together, and are prepared to work together to meet the challenges that face us. Well, here's here's hoping. All right, so let's move on to the the topic at hand, which is tax extenders. And so, Rohit, you know, I, I'm I'm going to keep saying that I'm I'm new to the Beltway. I guess it, it, this will be my third year now officially in Washington D.C. as part of your Washington National Tax Services practice. But you know, I still consider myself a outside the Beltway Midwestern guy. But I will tell you, working with you and have we had Chairman Camp on the. Uh, on the podcast uh, a few episodes ago, I've, have have learned a lot working with with you and our and our policy teams. But one of the issues that is very acute, particularly for our cross border tax talks audience, is CFC look through. So this is the provision that came in during the American Jobs and Creation Act in 2004 that generally said that payments between CFCs of dividends, interest, rents, and royalties, which would normally have been considered subpart F passive income, absent a couple of the other more narrow exceptions, that it generally allowed companies, we call it CFC look through, to be able to CFCs to be able to make payments between each other and not be subpart F income. And so this is a provision for many U.S. multinationals as well as foreign-based multinationals with subsidiary under the U.S. that's very important because, you know, 
getting cash uh, around a global group is is very important, particularly in an environment like like we have now, where where there's uh, you know liquidity is an issue. But frankly, this is even uh, uh, an important issue when there is not a liquidity crisis. So I have been focused on this since 2004, you know, advising my clients, and every year this provision continues to get extended. And I think it applied, I was, I was looking at the, the rules that really just applied for, for one year back in 2004, and then every single year it gets extended with a whole group of other tax provisions that commonly refer to extenders. Now, I will admit, I tend to focus on that one because that's most relevant for, for me and my clients. But it just seems odd to me as a guy kind of outside the beltway, it's like, well, why do we have tax policy like this? Is that, is like, if it's a good provision, why don't we just make it the law? And then as I think forward with the TCJA, where we've spent a lot of time here on the cross-border tax talks, talking about a number of different provisions where you know th those laws are going to to change for example 163j ebitda you know there's we we've talked about we've had pam olsen on with the save the da you know i i look into my crystal ball and, and look at look down the road ahead and there's a number of other provisions where there's going to be major changes so can we just start off by you know what are extenders and why do we have them and then we can talk about some of the procedural aspects of 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 how these things get extended sure so extenders are broadly speaking are a collection of now about 30 tax provisions that episodically expire and when they get extended they sometimes get extended for one year two years five years but as yet have not been made permanent or else they would no longer uh be extenders um, and so the issue here is really a function of the mechanism or the way in which Congress makes law and really has a lot to do with the congressional budget window. So typically when Congress is sort of accounting for policy changes, they account for them, they account for the score, whether it's spending or revenue or whatever, um, over what we call the 10 year window. So Congress generally operates with a 10 year budget window. Um, anything beyond 10 years is sort of like outside the window and almost doesn't count um, it, with rare, rare exception when you're talking about sort of a budget reconciliation process. But in a typical legislative format, it's the 10-year window that matters. So let's take look-through, for example. If I extend CFC look-through, or I as a Congress extend CFC look-through for only one year or two years, then I only have to account for the revenue loss associated with a one or two-year extension. If I, if I want to do five years or account for five years, and if I want to do 10 years, 10 years is the same as permanent. Because if I do 10 years, I've, I've covered the entirety of the budget window, and there's no sort of incentive or um, you know economic advantage or scoring advantage. Uh, once you get to 10 years, you might as well do it permanently. And so generally speaking, not universally, but generally speaking, this is driven by the desire to keep the overall score or the overall cost of the measure within some predefined parameter. Sometimes that predefined parameter is set by agreement ex ante. Sometimes more often, it's just a political tolerance for like how big of a bill will there be the votes for in the House and the Senate, right? And once you just sort of have a sense of politically, okay, we can vote for $100 billion or $500 billion, or whatever the number is, then you start working backwards from there and say, okay, well, what can fit um, inside that $100 billion sort of bag, you know, size bag, how much sand can I put in that $100 billion bag? And, you know, fewer provisions to make them permanent, or you could do 30 provisions and make them all temporary. 
right? Well, 30 provisions is going to get you a lot more political support because everyone's got, you know, with 30 provisions, you've got a lot more tools at your disposal to build political support, to build a coalition, to vote for whatever the legislation is. Um, whereas if you only had, uh, you know, fewer provisions, but for a longer period of time, well, you know, the people that like those provisions are going to vote for it, whether they get two years, whether they get five years, right? Doesn't, or, or 10 years. Um, it doesn't change the political calculus for them, but it does alter the calculus um, for others. And so that's why typically you see these provisions traveling together, extended for one, two, three years, maybe, you know, five years in some cases, um, but not made permanent because made permanent means you just got to account for more revenue loss. And so this is all just a function of, or overwhelmingly a function of um, the congressional budget rules, the 10-year budget window, and how Congress sort of makes, I will say there is there are a handful of exceptions. Every once in a while, um, you have an incentive that is sort of explicitly thought of as temporary in nature. It's a new industry that we're trying to support, or it's a stimulus style measure. We're dealing with um, you know, some sort of disruption in the economy and we're creating an incentive that is designed to be temporary. So, you know, for a while there was an incentive to um, buy automobiles, sort of a cash for clunkers, we called it, type provision. You know, there have been home buyer tax credits that were periodic in nature and then and set to expire. One hallmark, one as a sort of an outside observer, one way to sort of identify, is this a provision that's likely to be temporary or is this a provision that is likely to be wrapped into some year-end extension along with everything else, is what happens at the end of the sort of period of time for the incentive? Is it does it just go away completely? Does it kind of fall off a cliff or does it phase down? Congress doesn't do cliffs. When Congress arrives at a cliff, it typically doesn't allow the things just to expire kind of whole hog. Um, it, it will eventually come back and extend them either you know right before they expire or sometimes after they expire. Uh, but Congress as a rule doesn't do cliffs. Congress does ramps. They, they will let things ramp down, but they generally won't let them fall off a cliff. Mm-hmm. So you had mentioned that there are about 30 of these. Again, I tend to be laser focused on, on CFC look through, as you know, as with a bunch of our other international tax partners. How, how long has this been going on, right? Because this was going on, I think, right before look through, right? I mean, we go way well past, well before 2004, and there was a bunch of other provisions like for financial services income, for example. Um, is this has this been going on? I mean, how long has this been going on? How long has that list been been? Have we been adding to that that thirty or so that you mentioned? So the list changes. I mean, some version of this has been happening since the eighties, right? I think about the R and D tax credit, for example, which you know was extended for you know episodically, you know, one year, two year chunks for almost thirty years, and then in two thousand fifteen, um, it was made permanent as a part of what was called the PATH Act, and there was an agreement to make you know a bunch of provisions permanent. And then others got longer term extensions and some got extensions with ramps or phase downs, especially in the renewable uh, incentive sector. Um, but, you know, the, the interesting thing about extenders is it's not a static list. The list, things get added, new, you know, new incentives get created and things get taken off either because they're allowed to expire or they're made permanent. The major driver of extenders was something on the individual side called the AMT patch, right? The alternative minimum tax patch. And this was a provision that shielded a lot of middle-class and upper-middle-class taxpayers from paying, being subject to the alternative minimum tax. Regardless of whether you thought CFC look-through was good or bad, or the active financing exception for financial institutions was good or bad, or work opportunity tax credit, or whatever it was, you, all of that was dwarfed 
by the prospect of allowing a whole swath of middle class and upper middle class taxpayers in literally every jurisdiction in the country being subjected to the to the AMT. And so that was a big driver of policy. But that, you know, several years ago, that patch was made permanent. And then we redid the whole thing in the TCJ anyway. Um, so we no longer had that as a driver. So then the R&D credit was kind of the major driver because everyone loves research. Um, but then in 2015, the R&D credit gets made permanent. But of course, in 2017, Republicans as a part of the TCJA had a delayed revenue raiser, uh, the requirement, so it changed the 174 um, provision that requires research expense to be capitalized uh, and amortized over a period of uh, five years for domestic, 15 years for foreign. Um, as I said, five years ago, we were thinking about the R&D tax credit. Now we're thinking about 174 expensing or the change to 163J to preserve the depreciation and amortization addback. So this is sort of a, you know, it's a constantly evolving list and the politics of extenders are heavily influenced by what is on the list at any given time in any given year. Uh, and so, but to the broader point, we've been doing this for as long as I've been doing tax policy. We've actually been doing this even longer than I've been doing tax policy and I've been doing tax policy since 1995. All right. So, so it's been going on for, I mean, it's just part of the way we, we, we do business. It sounds like what about the, the all or nothing? It, it seems that when we, and, and at least from, again, from my experience, thinking about CFC look through that kind of everything gets thrown in, or in other words, what those, pro, those provisions that have not been made permanent or have not otherwise fallen off the list, these seem to be all grouped together. The policymakers, when they vote on this, it's, you know, I, I don't see them kind of picking and choosing from these, or is that a incorrect assumption? So every once in a while, we get sort of enough momentum to really make some choices about which policies we want to extend and which policies do we not. And that kind of happened a little bit in 2015 when the R&D credit was made permanent, there was a consensus, okay, we're going to make the, the R&D credit permanent. We're going to stop doing this on an episodic basis. But you're right. More typically, what happens is we either get to the end of the year when these things are about to expire or they expire and we are now in sort of catch-up mode. And the right answer is to sort of sit down, take a look, figure out which of these are right, which of these are wrong, which do we want forever, which do we want to maybe phase down over time. There's just never the time or the interest to do it. And so the it's just the path of least resistance. The path of least resistance is all these provisions expire and let's just change, you know, we can go in and erase uh, 2020 and at, you know, make it 2021 or 2022. And that's relatively easy to do. So, you know, one broader lesson, not just with extenders is Congress will almost always take the path of least resistance. Um, and with extenders, the path of least resistance has typically been just extend them all. Um, don't make any, you know, don't go through the sort of making the hard choices of which are going to survive and which are not going to survive. Um, you know, over the last couple of years, you've seen House Republicans in particular sort of start to make more noise about, hey, this is a terrible way to make policy. We really ought to make some tough choices here or not. Maybe not tough choices. We just ought to make some choices, right? Like maybe they're easy choices. Uh, maybe we can, there's certain things we can all agree should be made permanent and, and we should do that. But the problem, Doug, is um, now you're getting into sort of the broader political incentive. So let's say there are 10 things that everyone agrees should be made permanent. And then there are like another 10 things where some people want to make it permanent, other people phase it down, other people say, no, we should just let this thing expire. So those, the people that care about the 10 that are not the consensus make permanent know full well that if the consensus provisions all get made permanent, then they are less likely to get their provisions extended or subsequently made permanent and have a big political engine driving the process. 
right? So their incentive is to say, no, no, if you can't make the popular stuff permanent and leave my guy behind, because if my guy gets left behind, he may never find a, a train to leave the station. He may get stuck here forever. He'll be in you know legislative purgatory for, for all time of a memoriam. And so I'm not prepared to support permanence for the popular things unless my thing, um, which maybe is not as consensus, can also be made permanent. And since there's not consensus, like by definition, then you just end up in a, okay, fine, we'll just do everything for two or three or four years, whatever it is, or maybe just one year and see if in the course of the next year, you know, we can find consensus. And by next year or two years from now, whenever these things expire, we will have figured out which of these we're going to do and which of these we aren't. And I promise we're not going to do this again. And then a year or two later, we find ourselves having not done that work because things get in the way. Sometimes it's a pandemic, sometimes it's an election, sometimes it's just other stuff. And, you know, a year or two later, we find ourselves, ah, yeah, I really meant to do that, but we didn't. Well, I guess we're going to extend these again, but this time I mean it. Like, no, I really mean it. No, I really, really, really mean it. And yet only really once in a while do we ever really mean it. And more often than not, we don't. Right. And, and it's 16 years. I can't believe how long I was talking to one of our new associates and explaining some of these rules and the exceptions to sub F. And I had to remind myself, this has been going on for 16 years for, for CFC look through specifically. So let me ask a follow-up question, because one of the things that you had mentioned was, was the timing of the enactment of these extenders. And this is one something that I know is maddening, particularly for some of our publicly traded clients and, and taxpayers out there. So, you know, what ends up happening is, is a number of taxpayers have these structures, right, where they're making, let's say, interest or royalty payments between CFCs that don't meet one of the same country or other exceptions. And so they, they need CFC look through to say that they're to, to have, to not have subpart F on those income flows. And then the provisions expire. Right, it, the clock hits. You know, December thirty first. You know, the 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 prince turns into a frog, and now all of a sudden, that royalty income is now subpart F income. And then, you know, three and and so for publicly traded companies, with those rules are no longer applicable, then those companies need to accrue those taxes for financial statement purposes. Yet we all know that, you know, it's very likely or and what has happened in the past is that that next year extenders then happens with retroactive effect. And so then those public companies who have had to, to book that liability then end up having to reverse that. And it's just it seems like, uh, frankly, just a little bit of craziness when a lot of us are all like, well, we know it's going to get extended. So companies aren't going to restructure or do anything, do anything else. Can you shed a little light on why this happens? And, and it's probably just politics, but can you, can you dive into that a little bit just on, on the timing of this and why this has just continued to be such a challenge for at least for look through for the past 16 years? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, in, you know, as I said, sometimes, uh, well, a, a rule of Congress is they will always follow the path of least resistance. Another sort of good rule of thumb for congressional behavior is they will uh, generally act only when faced with an actual deadline where there's some real consequence for the failure to act. For a number of these provisions, if you let them expire, but then do it retroactively, there's really, other than the admittedly significant sort of complexity burden of having to accrue and then reverse um, for financial statement purposes, but there's no real world consequence, right? Like, as you said, companies don't restructure upon expiration because they sort of know in the back of their mind, yeah, this is probably going to get extended. And it'll be extended retroactively. So I don't really need to do anything other than accrue 
um, these taxes and then I'll probably end up reversing it before the end of the year. And so the way Congress really starts to think about it is, yeah, this thing is expired. And so let's say CFC look through expires at the end of this year. In 2021, companies will start accruing the tax because the provision is not in effect. But in Congress's mind, well, as long as you know we take care of this by the end of 2021, right? Even if it's retroactive to the beginning of the year, kind of no harm, no foul, because really the tax isn't going to be paid. There's not going to be cash out the pocket, um, you know, until companies file their return and they don't file their 2021 return. So I really do have, as a member of Congress, I, you know, you sort of feel like eh, I got all of 21, 2021 to take care of this. And so really, you know, the end of 2020, when this thing expires, is not the real deadline. Um, and now taxpayers do, and I'm having these conversations with former colleagues say, look, this is, you know, this is imposes a lot of costs and a lot of administrative heartache for no productive economic purpose, right? Like someone's actually got to do the work to accrue the tax and someone's got to do the work of reversing it, right? This is just, uh, you're just in injecting a lot of inefficiency into the system when that person can be, you know, engaging in more productive activities. And I will tell you that argument, and this was true when I worked on Capitol Hill, that just falls flat, right? The this is complicated. This is burdensome. That argument really just doesn't move the needle on Capitol Hill. Now, if you showed up and said, structure our operations to the detriment of the US, that would move the needle. But Congress knows that's not the case because they've got lots and lots of experience dealing with them retroactively. In fact, not that long ago, we went a full 18 months um, between expiration and renewal. And you know that renewal was going back, You know, I mean, that was we really broke a record going back 18 months on extending provisions that had been expired for well over a year. Um, and yet what Congress learned from that is, you know what, it's not great, but it's also not the end of the world. And Congress, you know, kind of needs an end of the world or something significant, some action forcing deadline to, to kind of get its act together. Um, and what we've just seen over the years is the just the mere expiration of the incentives isn't sort of enough of an action forcing deadline to prompt action, at least not every year. Sometimes it is, but often it's not. So do you have any thoughts, Rohit, on how this, how we might fix this? Or is this just kind of a, a necessary part of our process, given that, you know, we have the way you explained, we have these budgetary requirements and we've got kind of the 10 year window. Is this just something that we need to live with as part of our legislative process? Or uh, uh, is there a better way for us to, to do tax policy for, for these particular 30 some provisions? I mean, there's certainly a better way. Uh, the question is, what is the, you know, could you find consensus for a different approach? So I have sort of episodically thought about this, like how do, you know, what's a better way to deal with extenders? So, you know, we think about Congress has a 10 year budget window and sometimes, you know, a new incentive um, is really meant to be temporary and it wouldn't be right to say, you know, we're doing a sort of a really brief stimulus type proposal. We're gonna do it for a year or two it's really not fair to say that provision, well, you have to account for permanent score, right? Because it's not intended to be permanent policy. Um, whereas, you know, look through or the work opportunity tax credit or the new markets tax credit or any or low income housing tax credit, there's any number of these others in the pile of 30 that really are intended to be permanent policy. And so for those now, the problem is at ex ante, it is sometimes difficult to be clear. Is this one that's really temporary? Or is this one that's really intended to be permanent? We're just sort of playing budget games, right? And so you know, one way, one one approach might be, for example, to say, look, um, once a provision has been in effect for you know ten years, that that extension that crosses the ten year threshold, that has to now account as a permanent cost, right? So the first eight nine times you do it, you can get away with saying this is a temporary thing. I'm doing this for a year. I'm doing this for two years. But if you look, uh, you know, backwards and say, okay, now we're at year ten 
of this provision. And clearly this was intended to be permanent policy or maybe over time Congress decided it was gonna be permanent policy regardless of what they thought you know, at, at the outset. Um, once you get to that 10th year in the code, the cost of it is gonna be the same whether you do it for one year or you make it permanent. And that would sort of change the incentive. So at the point at which you're like, all right, really this is permanent policy and we should just account for it, you would change the incentive structure. Um, there are any number of other ways you might go about doing this, but as long as, uh, you know, again, back to the sort of rules of thumb, Congress will follow the path of least resistance. As long as Congress can kind of, quote, get away with doing these one, two, three years at a time and only paying for one, two, three years of expense, they will continue to do so. And I, I you know, as much as I think that there are better ways to do it, and, and I'm not the only one, lots of people do, um, I'm not convinced that Congress really sees this as something that they want to grapple with, right? Uh, because... This, from their perspective, it's basically working. It's not perfect, but it's not the worst thing in the world. And if it's basically working, they've got other priorities to deal with, right? And right now it's pandemic related stuff, but you know, every year, every season, there's always something that is a slightly higher priority. And then you think about it this way, Doug, right? Um, if I'm an elected official and I'm thinking about what is it that I'm gonna spend my time on for the betterment of the country that also has some political advantage, something that I can go talk to my constituents about, and make the case for my to be reelected, um, I'm reasonably certain that uh, going back uh, to Kentucky, for example, for Mitch McConnell and saying, well, I fixed extenders, I changed the incentive structure, so we're not going to have permanent uh, incentives in the code as opposed to temporary incentives in the code. There is probably, you know, there might be 10 taxpayers in the entire Commonwealth of Kentucky who, you know, who'd be moved by that argument. But the other several million people that Mitch McConnell needs to vote for him to get reelected, they don't even know what this issue is, and they certainly don't care enough to vote over it. Yeah, that 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 is certainly certainly fair. Um, so you, you had mentioned you you stated that you know it is working, and 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 I get that. One of the concerns that I have is with respect to the TCJA because to be able to to get that legislation through through the budget reconciliation process there is obviously a whole number of different provisions we've already mentioned a, a couple 163j and the de depreciation and amortization for example as as one of those um looking into your crystal ball with with some of those provisions from the TCJA because some of those just seem to be even wider applicability i also think of the potential change to the section 250 deduction um what do you think what what is your crystal ball tell you with respect to some of these provisions with the TCJA do they just kind of get thrown into extenders like look through and and because um, or, or what's what's your guess? Or the, are we just going to let those expire and change because you know we're going to need the the revenue? What do you uh, what do you foresee? Yeah, so um, you know, it's you can't think about what's going to happen at the end of twenty twenty two or the end of twenty twenty one rather uh, with one seventy four and one sixty three J without also at least taking judicial notice of the fact that there's a second fiscal cliff coming up at the end of twenty twenty five when all of the individual and pass-through provisions from the TCJA expire. So talk about extenders, like this is the, the granddaddy of extenders. This is like, you know, every working American would face an overnight tax increase if the individual and pass-through provisions um, weren't extended. And so, and, and Congress of course is aware of a ton of pressure over the course of the next, you know, 13 months or so to either repeal the 174 and 163J provisions or at a minimum, delay them. And if you were thinking about delay, a delay to the end of 2025, lining it up with all the other provisions from the TCJ, all the other individual and passive provisions that expire would sort of make 
logical sense, right? We're already facing a roughly $3 trillion fiscal cliff at the end of 2025. What's another couple hundred billion dollars between friends? And as somebody who cares about 162J or 174, you would have a, at some point in 2025, a rather significant piece of tax legislation is going to be enacted, if nothing else, to deal with all the individual and passive provisions. And then you know your 163J and 174 are likely to hitch a ride on that train that will leave the station probably in Q4 of 2025, because as I said, Congress waits until the very last minute um, before they act. And actually, I wouldn't be surprised, Doug, if you know, given the size of the 2025 fiscal cliff, if the 2026 provisions, right, the change of 250 deduction, FDII, guilty, and the like, um, all of those sort of get pulled forward. So look, 2025 is shaping up to be a rather significant year for tax policy because it has to, right? A significant increase happens on 1126 for every uh, every individual in the country if something is not done. And no government, no version of, no. I don't care, doesn't matter who they are, they are not going to just let that happen. So I think that some of these shorter term uh, sort of tax increases are, yeah, maybe they'll get repealed. Maybe there's sort of some bipartisan compromise that takes those off the books completely. But I think at a minimum, and I know this from talking to people on Capitol Hill who are already thinking about this, at a minimum, they would like to push those things out at the end of 2025. Uh, because again, what you're looking for, if nothing else, is a high degree of confidence. So if I can't get a permanent fix here, I'm at least pushing myself out to a date where I know Congress isn't just going to you know, run through that hurdle and ignore it. And Congress is not going to run through the, the end of 2025 hurdle because there are too many individual taxpayers whose you know, the tax bill sort of hangs in the balance there. All right. So, so Rohit, given where we are with the, the Senate elections, right, we are going to have this runoff um, here in, in January in, in 2021. And so you know, even if the Democrats control or if we end up with Republicans winning one of those margins in the Senate, or um, even if it's it, or we're going to have mixed government, what is the likelihood that given the, the political climate that we have today, that the Section 174 and 163J, that they'll actually need to, to pass legislation to kick the can or to extend those to, to 2025? Is, is that a realistic poss possibility in today's political climate? No, I actually, I think it is. Um, I, I don't think that Congress would do those and those alone. I think it would be part of a broader bipartisan agreement. Um, so look, if we end up in divided government, if, if Republicans keep the Senate, um, or even if Republicans don't keep the Senate, even if it's a 50-50 Senate, right? Either way, um, policy change is going to have to be by and large bipartisan, right? Um, I think the filibuster is going to remain a feature of the Senate. Um, and that means that most legislation requires 60 votes. So if you've got 50 Democrats, then you need at least 10 Republicans uh, to be able to you know, pass legislation. There is the possibility of using budget reconciliation to enact uh, tax policy changes, but that that is really challenging in a divided Senate. You've got to get all 50 Senate Democrats uh, to agree, and you've got to get 218 House Democrats to agree, and there may only be 223 or 224 House Democrats to begin with. So those are pretty thin margins. It's not out of the question, but it's not your uh, tool of first choice. And so, look, I think there is already, I know, because I, I, this is what I do, um, there is bipartisan desire to want more change from happening. And there is uh, starting to be evidence of bipartisan opposition to allowing the 163J change to happen as well. And those can be negotiated for you know, other things that congressional Democrats have clearly made a priority. These are largely individual visions. I think of things like expanding the child tax credit, or the earned income tax credit, or the dependent care credit some version of those things, and those can be done in any number of different ways. Um, so I could see absolutely 
bipartisan agreement in 2021, uh, you know, some combination of business provisions, some combination of individual provisions. Look, it's not out of the question that this actually gets wrapped into a sort of COVID relief stimulus bill, maybe as early as Q1 of 2021. I mean, you think about, um, I think there's a legitimate argument on 163J. And for 174, it's a timing difference, but, you know, it does create a cash tax obligation and taking cash out of the system as we're coming into a recovery is probably not a great policy choice. Um, I could see, again, you know, if not outright repeal, at least delaying that uh, provision to line it up with, and then you have to pick a date to line it up. And the logical one, because Congress knows that this sort of second fiscal cliff is coming. So that's sort of, it's a, it's a very natural date for Congress to look at. And, and you could see maybe even individual provisions that are being expanded also being lined up to that, you know, 2026 or 1231-25 deadline. Again, because both sides will know a major tax bill is going to get written at the end of 2025. We'll certainly talk about it here on Cross-Border Tax Talks. Rohit, this has been absolutely fascinating. I've learned a lot about extenders. Uh, thank you very much for, for coming on and being our featured guest on Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thank you, Rohit Kumar, co-leader of PwC's Washington National Tax Services Practice, for joining me on this episode. I'm Doug McConey, International Tax Services Leader. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of Cross-Border Tax Talks. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.